0: Well good morning, we're back and it's uh, actually winter, it's actually January. Uh, we've almost changed the name of the study we do here to Winter Bible Study and, and actually it's sometimes almost Spring Bible Study because uh, sometimes it's, it, we've moved it around and it's uh, as late as April some years when we've done it, but it's actually January Bible Study this year and uh, winter dawned on us this week and that, that seems a perfectly appropriate uh, to, for our January Bible study time and I'm so glad to be back to Emmaus and so glad to see Owen and um, every every report I get from you all about him is just therapy sweet wonderful and uh, you know it's almost to the place where I get the the text or email and and I'm, I'm sort of like I, I probably make a face like this oh come on he can't be that perfect uh, but uh you know, 20 years I've been uh, teaching uh, at OBU and you don't immediately see uh, the fruit of your investment in people. Uh, I mean, they have, to, they have to graduate first, which could take anywhere from four to six years. And uh, we like the four end of that, right? Those of you who have kids in school, you like the four year end of that scale. And then uh, many, uh, most of the students go on to some sort of graduate school, and then they have to start finding their way. And it's just been in the last few years that you, you know, I've been able to actually see some of those students that I've had in class going out and, and doing the very thing that God's called them to do. And um, I know lots of people invested. I'm not trying to claim all of Owen and Amanda and whatever they are today. But I'm, I'm very honored, and uh, it just, it, it's so encouraging to me that, that I may have had just a little bit of investment in, in them uh, to, to help them uh, get to where they are today. And I'm so, so proud and pleased uh, to see they're doing so well here. And I'm thankful for the invitation to come back. And it's Malachi this year. And that, that's another thing that if you've been coming to these for, for many years, you will note one of these is not like the other. And every other one I've done has been a New Testament book. I don't know if you know it or not. But every third year, the Southern Baptist Convention designates an Old Testament book as the January Bible study book. Shh. Now, I've not followed that every year. I follow it every year, whatever the New Testament book is. And then through the years, when they go to the Old Testament book, I just pick my own New Testament book to do that year. And you might not even know it. But I saw it was going to be Malachi, and I thought, you know, 20 years, in seven more years, I'm going to run out of books so I better go ahead and start taking up the Old Testament ones and uh, I enjoyed getting, getting it together and getting, preparing it and uh, so I'm very pleased to be doing Malachi uh, this week and I'm not going to do an introduction to Malachi this morning, I'll do that this evening, I'm just going to pick a text and, uh, and, and preach from it this morning. So the text this morning is Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 5. Let's go ahead and read that text together. I know it might seem an odd break, say 2.17 through 3.5, but the chapter divisions don't always capture the thought divisions. So uh, beginning at Malachi chapter 2 verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them or where is the God of justice? Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the immigrant among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for those throughout the ages that you have given a word to speak. We are thankful that you called prophets among the ancient Israelites who had a word for them and now have a word for us. I pray that you would convict us this morning of our idolatry. I pray you would convict us of when we fail to take notice of those who might be in need around us. I pray you would convict us when we trivialize the fact that the presence, your presence, the presence of the God of all creation is in this place with us today. In the name of Christ, amen. Winter is here. It arrived just a couple of days ago. And uh, it's interesting to me to sort of note the distinctions and the variations between how people in this part of the country deal with a storm warning, winter storm warning, compared to, I'm from southeastern Kentucky, it's sort of the mount, mountainous area there, we'd get quite a bit of snow from time to time. I, I still remember how, how we dealt with those sort of warnings and how we deal with them here in Texas and Oklahoma, where I've been for about 30 years And you know, when you get a three to five inch warning, storm warning, three to five inches, like we got, started getting like on Wednesday, Thursday, uh, it's interesting to me to watch how people prepare, or some might say panic. Now, if if the snow starts falling midday, there's genuine panic. I mean, schools will start letting out then, right then and businesses people start closing down locking down their businesses everybody's trying to get out and get home uh, to keep from getting caught in traffic and all that and of course all this causes a traffic jam in the like the middle of the day and of course uh, if it comes at night schools are called off Uh, but what you can what you can bank on is if they've given the forecast three to five inches of snow before a flake begins to fall if you go to Brahms or to Walmart or wherever you shop you're going to find that bread and milk have pretty much been wiped out. I mean, those shelves are ransacked. The dairy coolers have, uh, have been, you know, gone through them. There's hardly anything there. That's just how it seems we deal with these things. And I don't fully understand that. I mean, if I'm going to be trapped inside for two or three days, do I want bread and milk? I mean, what about cookies and Doritos and Mountain Dew? That's what we should be getting. Why, what, what's up with the bread and the milk? I mean, who wants bread if you're trapped inside for two or three days? I don't know. It's interesting to see the different ways we deal with storm warnings, and just we've seen that in the last uh, couple of days. The announcement that something big is on the way that will disrupt our lives as we know it inspires an interesting array of responses. One person will board up their house and head inland in the face of a hurricane warning. Other people will head out to the beach for a party and ride it out on the front lines. Like in 2016, Hurricane Matthew hit. And vanilla ice through social media encouraged people to, you know, go to the beach and have a party. And that's not usually a good idea. We can choose how we will prepare. But what we can't do is avoid the fact that the storm is coming. Malachi warns us that something big is coming, that he is coming and we would better get ready. Malachi provides a loud heads up to people that think they have reason to believe, that since you belong to God or that since you belong to this church or because you pray, that somehow we are looking forward to the day when Jesus appears and that what a great day that will be. Of course, he will show up and he will vindicate us and he will hug us up close and he's going to crush the pagans and what a great day that will be. Malachi seems to have another message for us. He seems to want to remind us that when that day of the Lord comes, maybe we ought to be preparing for it rather than just assuming it's going to be a warm embrace for all of us. For about two generations, the Israelites had been returning from captivity. When we get to Malachi's prophecy, probably somewhere around 450 BC, it's been a long string of difficult years, in fact, difficult centuries for Jewish people. Going all the way back to like 722 B.C., the northern kingdom Israel had been invaded by the Assyrians. And then in 586, the Babylonians had inv- invaded the southern kingdom Judah. And then they were, at, when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, now they're under Persian rule. And that's kind of where they find, we find the Israelites when we read his prophecy. And they had hoped that everything was going to be grand now that the Persians had let them go back to their homeland. They'd been carried away by the Babylonians. The Persians, Cyrus the Great, the emperor said, you can go home, you can rebuild your temple. And they've done that. They've got their nice, shiny, bright temple and they're back in the land. And, and this might be the time when they would have expected that God would just shine down on them all his blessings. And they look forward to the day when God will come and crush the pagans and drive them completely out of their land and that they will once again have their land without having to pay taxes to the Persians or having to live by some foreign oppressor's laws. Because they are the people of God. And yet, when you look at the way they live their lives, they're not living according to God's commandments. As we read Malachi, it's clear that their eyes have wandered away from the Jewish women, girls that they grew up with, and they're looking at these foreign women that look exotic to them, these people who worship other gods. He condemns them for that. They neglected the poor. Their priests, their leaders had become corrupted. And in their arrogance, they keep asking God questions like, where are you and when are you going to come and vindicate us? And it's in the face of that that we find 2.17 through 3.5. It begins like this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. That's the prophet's declaration. In fact, there are six of these in Malachi where God makes a declaration through the prophet Malachi. In fact, it begins, at there's one verse of introduction in 1-1 and then in 1-2, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the declaration. Well, in the face of each declaration that God makes, the people come back with a question. And it's not an honest question. It's a sarcastic question. I have loved you, says the Lord. In Malachi 1-2, they say, oh really? Well, how have you loved us? I sort of look around, it doesn't look like you love us very much. And, and then in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 6, he, he, he said the, God says through the prophet, you have profaned my name. And they look around and say, how have we profaned your name? And, and then in, in chapter 2, verse 10, it's like, you have been faith, You have lost faith in me and in your brothers and sisters. And they say, oh really? Well, how have we been faithless? And then we come to the fourth. And there are six of these disputes between God and the people. This is the fourth one. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You are physically and emotionally wearing God out with your complaints and your words. And instead of saying, oh my goodness, what are we doing? What are we doing if we're wearing God out, if we're beating him down, if we're wearing him down emotionally? We should repent. Instead, the people respond with a, oh really, well how have we wearied him? And then we get the warning, here's what they have said, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, And he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So here's what they're saying to God. Here's how they're wearing God out with their words. They're making two claims. Or they're making two assertions. Or asking two questions that really question the character of God. The first one is by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he's pleased with them. That's a question about God's goodness. What kind of God would God be if he looked at those who did evil? If he looked at those who disobeyed his commandments and said, well, they're good. I delight in them. What kind of God would that be? Would that be a good God who looked at those who did evil and said, oh, that's good. What kind of God would that be? not the God we've come to know in Scripture, not a good God, it strikes at the very nature and character of God. Is God a good God? Well, then God could not look at evil and call it good. Essentially, they're asking, where's the God of justice? Where is he? And I don't know, here we are several uh, centuries after this prophecy was given. We live in a much different uh, setting, but we might look around and have much of the same question. Why is it that people who seem to have no interest in God, who might be immoral, ungodly, they seem to get every break? They seem to be doing just fine. Maybe one of those people got a promotion that you didn't get in the last year. Maybe they got a new car, and you need a new car desperately. And here you are, you love God, you try to obey His commandments, you you come to His church, you're part of the church, you give your money to kingdom causes, and you find yourself maybe even suffering. And, And you know that person, your neighbor, the person you work with, ungodly, unrighteous, could care less about God, fit as a fiddle healthy as can be you can sort of understand how these ancient Israelites looking around at their land that's been ravaged by foreign dominators they're paying taxes to live in that land that God had given them you can sort of see how they might look around at a a land ravaged economically depressed living in abject poverty and say it almost seems like God looks at these evil people, and he treats them like they're good, and he looks at these good people, and he treats them like they're evil. Where is the God of justice? Of course, the God of justice they want is the God who comes and wipes out their enemies and lifts them up above all the others and said, Look, these are my people, and I love them. That's what they wanted. That would be justice. And yet, that's not what they're getting. They live in this depressed land, and they feel as if God has abandoned them. Where is the God of justice? They might say it like this. Why is God not fair? Why is the world not fair? If it's God's world and I'm God's follower, why don't things work out for me more often? Why is the world not fair? Well, I'll start out by telling you, I'll give you this bit of information, I'm sure this won't shock anyone, but the world is not fair. We live in a fallen world. The world is not as God created it to be. And the world is not fair. It most certainly is not. Uh, as the great theologian Stephen A. Smith said even this week on uh, one of the ESPN program that he's on, uh, the fair is a place where you judge pigs. I'm joking. Did I call him a theologian? He's a bad theologian if he's a theologian. But uh, that, that was a catchy phrase that, uh, that actually my wife texted me this week. I was in uh, Altus that she heard Stephen A. Smith and she had the eyes rolling and I responded to it. That's actually a pretty solid statement. It is true the world does not appear to be fair. It would be an honest question to say, where is the God of justice? And they're wearing him out with this question. Why do the good not get the better deal? And why do the unrighteous not suffer? And, and, and that's a question that, that's sort of the, the age-old question. And we try to give answers to that. We say things like, well, we have free will. And because we have free will... Human beings often choose to do wicked things, evil things, and when they do, people suffer. And of course, that, that would explain the Holocaust, or that would explain some terrorist action in, in an airport in Florida, or that. You can explain that kind of suffering by free will, but that doesn't really explain a tsunami that wipes out 500,000 people, or why every five seconds a child dies in the world of starvation. You might say it's free will or you might say that God is punishing people for their unrighteousness. That's part of why people suffer. And that's true. I think sometimes we do suffer because we have disobeyed God. But that can't account for all the suffering that we endure. You might say suffering is redemptive. That God uses suffering in order to bring about his purposes. And this is why good people suffer. It's just God bringing about his purposes. And you might point to a story like Genesis. The, the, the biggest chunk of Genesis is devoted to uh, the Joseph story. And at the end of the Joseph story he ends up he's in Egypt. And he's got there because his brother sold him out. And it, 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 he very easily could have already been killed. But he's risen through the ranks to like second in command in Egypt. And at the end of that, Genesis chapter 50, around verse 20, he makes that little well-known phrase, you, talking about his brothers, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. That somehow his suffering, was God's purpose was in it, and God was working his purposes. In fact, think about the defining story of our faith is the story of the suffering of the only righteous man to ever live. The cross is an image of God working his purposes through the suffering of a righteous person. So that's part of the answer. God works his purposes through the suffering of his people. Job is a good example that provides some answer to the question of why good people suffer. Why is there no justice? Why is it not that the evil suffer and the righteous get get the best deal all the time? In Job's case, it was a test. He didn't know that, but God was testing his resolve and his faith. The book of Revelation provides an answer to the question that is another aspect of it. That for whatever reason, there are forces at work in our world that are more than flesh and blood. Evil forces that would like to destroy God and God's purposes and God's people. And for whatever reason, at the present time, God allows those evil powers to, More freedom than we might like. But the book of Revelation promises that this will not always be the case. That God is already in the process of bringing about a plan where he is going to show up and crush evil and all those who do evil. And God will make things right. The book of Ecclesiastes gives another way of thinking about it. It doesn't try to explain evil and suffering it doesn't try to explain why the world seems to be so upside down and so it just assumes it it keeps saying all is vanity and it's a nice hebrew word havel and i don't think vanity is a good way to translate it i i can't think of the best translation i know is i have to lick my lips to do it if you're taking notes i'm not sure how to spell that but all of life is it's passing, it's transient, it's like, and then it's gone. So what do you do in the face of a world that seems like it's upside down? Well, you make the best of every day. You don't fall into depression and not get out of bed in the morning because life is. The, the, the advice that Ecclesiastes gives is that because life is, we ought to treasure every moment. We ought to get up every day. And think I'm going to make the best day I can out of this day I have. Because I might not have another. These are all possible ways to give an answer to the question of where is the God of justice. And they're wearing God out with the question. And then the answer comes in chapter 3 verse 1. God answers their continual harassment. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Well, that's good news, right? God's going to send his messenger. He's going to come and he's going to crush all these pagans around me and he's going to lift me up. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have people who are worthy of his name. So when he gets around to answering the question about where's the God of justice, he actually gives a warning. He says, oh, I've not forgotten and oh, I'm going to bring justice. But here's what you better know. You need to get ready. It's a warning. I mean, it's sort of like what you might hear in the spring uh, with David Payne or Mike Morgan or one of those guys where you hear them say, with great excitement, Oh no, it's a twisted rain-wrapped wall cloud. Or, look at that hook echo on the Doppler. Or, well, if I lived in Stigler right now, I'd find cover. These are the kinds of warnings that we get, storm warnings, and it's, it's completely up to you what you do with those warnings. How you prepare for the storm is up to you. But what you can't do is deny the storm is coming. You can't stop the storm from coming. And God's answer to this is, oh, I'm coming The storm is coming, and you better get ready. Now, why would God showing up be a warning? I mean, shouldn't this for God's people be like, Yay, it's party! Get out the party hats. You know, the noisemakers. Maybe we should plan a parade. It'll be a great day when the Lord comes. But does it sound like He's saying to them, Oh, it'll be a great day when the Lord shows up. Does it sound like a party when he describes this? No. He says, I am coming to judge my own people. God's own. His chosen one. And why would he do that? Look at verse 5. They're sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers. They defraud laborers of their wages. They oppress the widows and the fatherless. They deprive the immigrant of justice. They're not without fault. They want the God of justice to show up and crush their enemies, but they're disobedient too. Their hearts are far from God. They worship other idols. They don't take care of the least among themselves. And they do not take seriously the fact when they come to worship that the presence of Almighty God is in the place. In the temple, they trivialize the presence of God. They treat it like it's nothing. And so, God says, uh, I'm coming. And it's in the form of a warning. The day of the Lord is coming. This day of the Lord language is used throughout the prophets. 18 times in the prophets you get the phrase the day of the Lord. 208 times on that day. In Zephaniah 2, two, it's the day of darkness and gloom. And what is that day? It's a coming day when God will intervene in the world and he will bring his justice fully and finally. And it will also be a time of judgment for God's own people. You see the language he uses there? A fire and a person who works with garment soap. Now, fire can do a lot of different things. For those who are not God's people, for those who have rejected God, the fire will be an instrument of destruction. But what about for God's people? You know, the ones who try to manipulate God through magic rather than worshiping God. You know, the ones who don't take care of the least among them. You know, the ones who are perjurers and the ones who commit adultery, they're as unfaithful to their wives as they are to God. What about those folks who are God's people, but who are disobedient to God? Oh, there's fire, but the fire is to purify. Now, it might not be pleasant, but it's to purify, not to destroy. And because that fire is coming, a fire of purification that might be painful nonetheless, it's not a time to throw a party. It's a time to prepare. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. Sounds like a storm warning. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Where is the God of justice? And God says, Oh, it's coming. In fact, I'm coming. And you better prepare. So he gives this warning. I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. He gives this warning. And then he gives another. Look at the last verse uh, in Malachi chapter 4. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. There's that warning again. Here's what it puts me in mind of. Oh, I guess it's been... uh, 15 years ago, 14, no, it's not been that long. It's been about 10 years ago. I think Dale and Beth will probably remember this very well. Uh, Our firstborn son has never been easy to deal with. Some of you are going to relate to what I'm going to say about my firstborn child. In his life, he's 15 now. I would say I can count on one hand the number of times I have given him a direct command, and he has done it without complaint or without argument one hand when it happens it has happened so randomly it's like Haley's comet crossing the sky it's like my jaw just dropped to the ground like what and 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 this started pretty early that he was he was kind of tough to deal with and so who do you call I mean we didn't get any number that came with him that said you know if you have trouble with this call this number we didn't get one of those so, who do you call? You call Dale and Beth, because, you know, they're probably the best parents I've ever known. So, they did their best to try to help us, and I can't remember if that w- this was, it, but it, it, I, they, they, we watched a video with them, and they tried to give us guidance, and it, it, I don't know if they, this was their plan or somebody else, but we tried more than one, but there was one, two, three magic. You ever heard of that plan for child discipline for unruly children? One, two, three magic. Let me tell you quickly how it works. If the child disobeys or if the child shows you attitude, you say, that's one. And you don't talk, you don't complain, you don't fuss. You just say, that's one. And your child then gets a short period of time to straighten up. And if they don't, you say, that's two. And if the activity or the attitude or the disobedience continues... You say, that's three. And at that point, immediately, they have a five to ten minute timeout. Has anybody ever heard it? Am I the only one to try the one, two, three magic plan? Apparently, this is not a well-known plan. I now see why. The first time he got to three, which was like the first five minutes, you know, when we tried the plan, I had to drag him to the timeout area. I mean, who thinks the child's just going to walk to the timeout area when you've, you have know, So drag him to the timeout area, which was a little area where a washer and dryer was, and then put him in there and close the door and hold my body against it to keep him. And he may have knocked a hole in the door that time, the first time. But I could see this one, two, three plan wasn't magic. We've tried other things, and you know, he's 15 now, and uh, we've made a lot of progress with with him. The one, two, three didn't work so well. But I get it. It's almost like here in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, God says, that's one. And then at the very end of Malachi chapter 4, those last two verses, God says, that's two. And then there's about 400 years that passes. And the messenger who will prepare the way shows up. His name's John the Baptist. He is the Elijah to come. I'll talk about that on Wednesday night. But at the end there when he says Elijah will show up before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. Jesus says so on multiple occasions. That John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Funny thing happened between two and three. Jesus showed up. And the warning's still there. That's one. That's two. But in between two and three, God sent his own son to do something so that we wouldn't have to face this judgment. So that we wouldn't have to endure the consequences that would come if the count gets to three. And so here we are. And the call is to prepare. A storm is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And you have the choice of how you will prepare and whether you will prepare. You do not have a choice about whether the storm is coming. That's one. That's two. You better get ready. Let us pray. Father, I pray for in all the ways we are disobedient to you. In so many ways we take for granted your presence among us. In so many ways, we worship things other than you. Our hearts are factories for idols. Father, I pray your warning will sink deeply in our hearts today, and that we will know that rather than longing for the day of the Lord, for what a great and wonderful day. We will know we better get ready, or it will be a terrible day, a day of fire. May we prepare ourselves now, in the name of Christ, amen.